You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 15th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. April 15, 1726. Writer William Stuckley held a conversation with Sir Isaac Newton in Kensington, during which Newton recalled when formally the notion of gravity came to his mind. Later, in writing the memoirs of Sir Isaac Newton's life, he recorded that Newton said, and I quote, It was occasioned by the fall of an apple as he sat in in a contemplative mood. Why should that apple always descend perpendicularly to the ground, thought he to himself. Why should it not go sideways or upwards, but constantly to the Earth's center? So someone recalled someone else thinking he once thought something. I am skeptical. That sounds like hearsay. <laughs> it is a scientific fact. You can, or you could prove that? Is that that's falsifiable, Ed? Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> Anything's falsifiable on the internet. Thank you. Yeah. I posit <laughs> that Newton made that up to impress his friends and that he uh, no such incident ever occurred. We have a challenge, it sounds like. That's right. And I, I eagerly await Newton. That's not true, uh, Rebecca. Response. Apples fall to the ground all the time. That's oh, Yeah. Well, yeah. they're on the ground. They had to get there somewhere. Somehow. <laughs> the every apple They grew up from the soil. That's true. <laughs> well, we have a lot of news items this week, starting with a sad bit of news. Sir John Maddox has died at the age of 83. And as I'm sure you're all aware, John Maddox was the editor-in-chief of Nature Magazine, one of the, if not the most, preeminent scientific journals in the world. And you guys know how, where Maddox's career intersects skepticism? Rupert Sheldrake. That, that's one. Yep, Rupert Sheldrake. It's, this is kind of funny. I mean, Maddox you know, struck me as kind of like an ivory tower British scientist who, he's, I wouldn't say he was naive, but I think that he was a little shocked by the extent of nonsense that's being, that was produced by flagrant pseudoscientists. When uh, Rupert Sheldrake published his book, A New Science of Life, in 1981, John Maddox read the book and was shocked by the horrific pseudoscience it contained. That he got, um, that Maddox in his, in his, wrote a commentary, a scathing, scathing commentary. And again, Rupert, Rupert Sheldrake is an ESP reacher. He's researcher. He's still very prominent in the ESP field today. At the time, Maddox wrote a review entitled A Book for Burning with a question mark and said that although he does not believe in burning books, if it were legal, this would be the book to burn. So not exactly how I would have put it. (laughs) Wow. He said it's it's unnecessary to introduce magic into the explanation from physical and biological phenomenon. Yeah. When, in fact, there is every likelihood that the continuation of research, as it is now practiced, will indeed fill all the gaps that Sheldrake draws attention to. So I obviously agree with his scathing criticism of Maddox, but I think he was, you know, he was so taken aback by how horrible that book was that he might have overdone the rhetoric a bit. And then there's another instance where, where Maddox and the skeptical community cross paths. Uh, Bigfoot? No, our own James <laughs> Randi. Ah, Oh. He Maddox led the investigation of Jacques Benveniste, the French oh. homeopath, 
and asked uh, James Randi to participate in that as well. Maddox agreed to publish a review uh, of homeopathic studies in Nature, and he was somewhat criticized for that decision, although he justified it by saying that this will open up the dialogue about the evidence for homeopathy. I think fully expecting that, you know, if, we, if the the light of science was shown directly on homeopathy, that, you know, we would expose it for what, it's, for what it is. He apparently underestimated the power of faith in people to trump that of science and reason. Well, I think, yes, and I think, again, it was his just naivete, perhaps, about the, the nature of pseudoscience. You know, he was a scientist, but not a skeptic, so he didn't really realize how the game worked. And what he found out was that the scientific community promptly, completely ignored the review because they don't care about something silly like homeopathy. But the homeopathic community did not engage in meaningful discussion or scientific inquiry. They just used it as a propaganda tool to say that John Maddox and Nature Magazine think that homeopathy works and is and is you know, legitimate. So it became an imprimatur of legitimacy to the homeopathic community and was ignored by the scientific community, except for maybe those few skeptics who realize what, what a bunch of bunk homeopathy is. Uh, so it, it kind of backfired. It didn't have the results. I mean, any, any of us, if they could have told him, that's what would happen, but he just didn't, didn't know that. Uh, but then this was all premised on investigating the claims of Jacques Benveniste, it was that investigation for which he employed the services of James Randi, among others. And, of course, what they found was that uh, Jacques Benveniste could not reproduce any of his positive results when blinded controls and proper scientific methods were put into place. And his uh, his claims collapsed under that investigation. But was he deterred? <laughs> <laughs> was Jacques no, Benveniste sent packing with his tail between not. his legs and... Never surfaced again after that? No. no. He no. moved online and decided to sell homeopathy over your computer. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure many people so bought. So you can actually download your cures now right. that also don't work. <laughs> but the cool thing, uh, cool, the not cool, the interesting thing about the whole Jean Benveniste thing um, I found was that it seemed to be that it was actually his one of his assistants that was doing most of the... Mm-hmm. Um, kind of sketchy Fakery. work. Yeah, where it looked like she was skewing data to make it look like the homeopathic remedies were working, mm-hmm. as opposed to he himself doing it. That's a big no-no in science. To yeah. skew in the general. Yeah. Free yeah. red, right. And Randy tell, as Randy tells the story, he picked her out right away. He, sa- he tells the tale <laughs> that uh, when, when they were about to crack the seal on the envelope, you know, to break the code and to see what the results of the study was everyone was anxious and nervous and awaiting those results but she was as cool as a cucumber just filing her nails because she knew the results were going to be negative because she was not allowed to fake the data Hmm. i didn't get much of a reaction from you guys on that Um, ah (laughs) well i mean i knew you heard that story (laughs) well yeah i have never heard that before sir (laughs) you have educated me sir uh, the next news item comes from NASA, which has Na- apparently NASA, NASA, oh, NASA. <laughs> photographed the "quote unquote" hand of God. What a you, picture! Wow, guys, it's a it's a gorgeous picture, actually. It's uh, it, apparently cool. I didn't realize this, but apparently God is a Simpsons character. Uh, <laughs> He's got three fingers and a thumb. 
There's well, kind of a fourth finger there. I kind of see a fourth finger, yeah. Really? I, the ring I, finger. I, there I, is no ring finger. I don't see oh, Maybe the low-res version. I could only see three. He certainly looked like Homer Simpson. And for the record, God is, in The Simpson, is drawn as having five, four, oh, that's digit, right. four digits and a thumb. Is the only that's a one, very good point. Yeah. Really? Yep. Yeah. What an interesting bit of trivia. Hmm. Yep, there you go. So this is an uh, image taken by the Chandra Observatory, which is an X-ray telescope. And this uh, is a picture of a nebula, which is being created by a young and therefore very energetic pulsar, given the extremely sexy name PSR B1509-58. Aren't you at your post? So to describe the picture, it looks like a four-fingered ghost-like hand in blue. Yep. At the, or five like, fingers. From the wrist up. There's a bit of a forearm to it, too. The bigger picture, you can see there's forearm. Yeah. And it looks like a pretty good forearm. And, like, the, the hand cocked back with the fingers and thumb extended. If it's reaching up. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a, a red nebula yeah. at the fingertips. Almost like it's trying to grab it. All right, guys, do you see a, red, a right hand or a left hand? It's a uh, right hand. Well, it's neither. It could be whatever you want it to be, depending well, on what direction I see it it's as going. A, so hold up your right hand in front of you and hold it out like your Hamlet holding the skull. That's, that's kind of the shape of the hand I see. Well, it could be a left hand reaching away from your body. I think it more, looks more like a foot. <laughs> Did you guys see this title of this article? It said, Cosmic Hand Surprises Astronomers. And you know, and then I read the the short article that that was the title to, and it was a, a good it was a good short, uncredulous article. But they just totally like manufactured that title just to suck people in. Yeah, well, headline headline writers are different than the than the people who write the articles, and, and that's yeah, their the headline job. writers are yeah. the headlines are usually written by editors or someone else besides the author. Although interestingly, uh, NASA scientist Patrick Slane told the CNN. To tell you the truth, when I first saw the image, it wasn't a hand structure that jumped out at me at all. It was other, more complex structures. Excellent. Yeah, in other words, he was looking at look at it at, like an astronomer would, astronomer would at the details of the nebula, etc. And the sort of the big picture of the hand didn't jump out at him. Very cool. And of course, there was, you guys see there was one news story that actually incorporated a poll. You know, they're polling the readers: is this the hand of God or a pulsar? Uh, <laughs> like there's scientific debate about this. Yeah, right. Nice, Paul. Is this proof of God? <laughs> what would be funny is if you looked at that from a different angle, it probably would not even closely resemble a hand. You are oh, yeah. probably right. You, yeah, you mean like 100 light years away from where we are now or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, well, you know, that thing is – how big would that thing be about compared to our solar system, Steve? I mean, would it fit inside our solar that system? That thing is 150 light years across, so no. It's 150 light years across. How big is our solar system? Oh, it's not even close to that. It's a, it's a quarter – like a quarter, a quarter of a light year or something crazy like that. Oh, okay, so this thing is humongous. Yeah. Well, you figure the hand of God would be about that big, yeah. right? It's actually ginormous, Jay, to be technical. Yeah, you're right. How does he fit in my heart? <laughs> oh, it, that magic. Oh, okay. Well, from the very big, we're going to go on to huh. the very small. Bob's going to tell us about flying microbots. Nice nice segue Ooh. there. I was for some reason I was drawn to this article with the title Researchers Develop First Flying Micro Robot. They, if guys only really... it were a nanobot, Bob, you would have <laughs> never... Oh, forget it. <laughs> just weird. How big of a step, step is it from micro to nano? It's about, very close, about right? About three orders of magnitude. Uh, that's yeah, not the, bad. These, uh, yeah, Bob. 
these title writers relative. really know how to suck me in. This this new class of robot was developed by it was developed at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. The team is led by Professor Bayrad Kamasi, who is the director of the university's Maglev Micro Robotics Laboratory. Now, I hope you're not picturing a, a tiny Robbie the robot flying around no, and I'm moving not. moving little things. This guy, this little robot, is basically a tiny permanent magnet with these micro grippers attached, all together weighing about one three hundred three hundredths of an ounce. So this is r- small. And really light, really tiny, but it's incredibly precise. So they can position this thing to within, if my calculations were right, to win to within about a hundredth of a millimeter in a in a in a, in a tiny volume. It, it works in volumes equivalent to three by three by two centimeters. So within that volume, it could it's extremely accurate. Now it works by basically by using two magnetic fields. The robot, is, which is a permanent magnet, it has its own magnetic field, right? And that sits on top of a, of a magnetic field created by electromagnets. So they're kind of like one is sitting on the other one. And by altering the current through the electromagnet, you're, you distort its field, which then moves the, uh, the robot precisely in, in three-dimensional space. Camusie, uh, Professor Camusie says that we develop a focal point of a magnetic field in space, which the micro-robot hangs on. By changing the location of the focal point, the micro-robot is consequently moved. I guess by manipulating that magnetic field, it, the robot's magnetic field just kind of hangs on in this one spot. So that you move the focal point, you move the robot. And the grippers are pretty cool. These little grippers, you know how they open and close these guys? By shining no. a laser on it. They shoot a laser at the gripper, it heats it up, and the, which causes the gripper to open. Then they turn off a laser, the gripper cools down, and bam, the grippers close. So do you see a, a theme here with, a theme here with, with the robot? It's completely, it's completely isolated, completely separate, separated from, from everything. It could be used, they're probably going to use this thing in, like, for microassembly of mechanical components and even handling biological samples and potentially even microsurgery, which I thought was a pretty interesting wow. application. I'll end it with a quote from Camusy regarding this. He says that since there's no wiring and the robot freely floats in air, it can operate in an enclosed chamber while the whole setup is outside. It can work in hazardous environments, toxic chambers, and can be used to conduct biohazardous experiments. Also, since there's no mechanical linkage, it has a dust-free operation suitable for clean room applications. So a uh, pretty interesting little tiny robot. Yeah, I wonder how big they can make it. I wonder, I wonder how small can they make it. Yeah. Can they, how much smaller can they go? It'll be interesting to see what kind of range... Um, they, they can create, and I see no reason why they can't make it bigger and smaller. So we'll see what what they can do with it. It it's, looks pretty interesting. Does it have like a little carbon nanotube parachute in case the power goes out? <laughs> no, no, it does <laughs> no, not. No, it doesn't. Not, no, yeah, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe next year's model. Uh, that's we'll a design flaw. Don't be stupid, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> that's an option for the more luxurious micro flying robot, <laughs> right? Let's go on to the next item. Uh, Jay, you're going to tell us about this year's Darwin Awards. Well, yeah, I was. Well, I, I'm only going to really talk about one or two, but I was uh, recently talking to Steve about how I wanted to, to do a quick talk on the show about coffee enemas. Because uh, this is like something that goes way back with me. I remember a long time ago. Getting Bob, a coffee enema? Pro- no. Bob, you probably <laughs> remember this. Do you remember. Reading the news and finding out that uh, which sister of Michael J- was it Janet Jackson? She was getting coffee enemas. Probably. And she said that uh, 
she said that she gets coffee enemas to get rid of the sad cells that are oh, in her rectum. Yeah, the sad. Yeah. Remember oh that? My God, no, no, that's, that's I remember that. That is not so. True. Ever since then. I don't know. I just think I've I've hated coffee enemas. I hated the whole idea of using that therapeutically, and it's really ridiculous thing. And I'll talk more about it, I guess, in the next show. But anyway, so I'm doing searches on Google. I'm reading up on the whole thing, and I get to the Darwin Awards page, which I love. And the the Darwin Awards is basically a list of ridiculous ways that people have either severely injured themselves or died through you know miscalculation or, or lack of intelligence well to be clear though the severe energy uh, injury would have to be in such a way to stop them from procreating hence, hence the darwin, darwin award uh, right because the, the idea is that they've removed themselves from the gene pool right and that's what that's what the award is given for but you know if you go to darwinawards.com you could read all of it. They go They go pretty far back. I think as far back as like 1995 or even older. And there's just hundreds of stories on here. It's ridiculous, like all the stuff that you could find. So anyway, so what am I getting to? So I found this yeah, story. This is, this is it. I'm just going to read this one here. It's awesome. May 2004, 58-year-old guy from Texas. His name was Michael. He died of ingesting too much alcohol. And then as you read on, the idea, though, was that this guy had like a bad throat injury or some type of some type of uh, ailment with his throat and he couldn't drink alcohol so he was having alcohol enemas oh god literally Whoa. absorbing the booze oh. in his butt mm. uh, <laughs> so he goes out one night buys 1.5 two 1.5 liter bottles of of sherry which is really cheap booze and that turns out to be over 100 fluid ounces of of booze and i did a quick calculation that's about 20 glasses of of wine wow do, you know, you do a quick thing. Like, how many glasses of wine can the average person drink? If you're a regular drinker, you can drink about three or four glasses of wine, and you're going to really feel it. Really feel it. I mean, you you hit the five, six, seven mark, you're you're done. You hit the ten mark, you're really done. This guy is up in the twenty plus range. Yeah, but is it drinking it is a, is equivalent to the enema? I mean, well, the what I read, somewhere? Bob. The alcohol absorbs more quickly through the capillary beds in your rectum than your stomach. Well, not your. It's not alcohol isn't actually yeah. absorbed in your stomach. It's absor- absorbed in the the short yeah. area right past your stomach. But anyway, that's what I read. That that's what happens. So you actually could absorb it faster. When does it hit the liver? That's why you have to take some some medications, right? And you know, from other orifices because they get into your system more quickly. So. Right? Does it like bypass I mean, the? See, does it bypass the, the liver doctor, if you, you go in the back door like that? No, <laughs> it doesn't. No, it goes into your blood, and your liver your liver still filters the same way, but it just absorbs into your system quicker. Well, but generally, medicines that are given PR right per rectum, that route <laughs> is used to, because for some reason you can't take it orally, but the absorption is not so much quicker that it's used to increase the speed of of drug delivery. Sometimes, although that may be an advantage for some drugs, but usually it's not worth it to you know do it just because it gets absorbed a little bit quicker. It's usually because you can't, for whatever reason, you're unconscious or, or whatever, you can't take it orally. So he couldn't throw up for obvious reasons. So the guy literally passes out from the booze, and at some point over the night he died. In Connecticut, where we live, the legal limit is .08 blood alcohol. Blood alcohol level. Guess where he was. That's legal. You can get arrested, I think, at point zero eight now, where we live. But wh- what do you think? You mean driving? Yeah, yeah. He. Right, oh 8%. God. He was um, probably twice. Point two five. He was. Yeah. Point three two. He was point four seven. Whoa. 
That's how. Could you imagine? Yep. (laughs) For some quick background, the blood alcohol content in the United States is we use the percent by volume. So this is the mass of alcohol per volume of blood given as a percentage. So 0.47 would be 0.47%. And the LD50 or the lethal dose that would likely kill 50% of humans is 0.40. Although there are reported cases of people surviving with uh, higher content, uh, 0.55 has been reported and and verified. And there is even one case of a 0.914 that uh, was in Bulgaria that was uh, reported and confirmed apparently. So then I you know read the whole thing on there and then there's there's I guess you could sign up and you can leave comments after each one that you read so check these out. So these are reader comments. One of them is drunk off my ass. <laughs> takes <laughs> takes shit face to a whole new level. No he earned the award. No ifs, ands or buts about it. Oh god. Uh, yeah. What a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Wrecked him. Killed him. Killed him. Killed him. Can I just. I'm not, uh, no, 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 I'm just, sorry. Go on. Keep, I, please I, keep going. Drop never touched his lips. Uh, <laughs> coitus alcoholis. And then the last one was bottoms up. Oh, no. Here's a good one. Bottoms, bottoms up. <laughs> that might be my never favorite. Never again will I look at a table, a table full of liquor at a party and think, damn, that's an ass load of booze. <laughs> Oh my god! Okay, so this is a good site to go to. It's a lot of fun. It's yeah, oh. it's it's that morbid kind of fun where you feel terrible every time you chuckle because I mean it's awful. Like there must be something really terribly wrong with this man to have made him do that. I mean, who? who well, he was does an alcoholic. That? He was an alcoholic. He had to get yeah. his booze. Yeah, that right. was it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like smoking through your tracheostomy, you know. I mean, it's like that kind of desperate. (laughs) That I find much funnier. The the kid's dead. The kid's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I think that that guy shouldn't win a Darwin Award for it, though, because he was already 58. I mean, how many more kids was he going to Well, if you want to get technical. Yeah, I guess Darwin was done with evolution. I think so. He had – he won, really. You know, guys can have kids into their 60s, 70s. That's right. They can, exactly. but it's rare enough that... Anyway, I thought I'd share that with you guys. I, a little bit of humor. All right, well, we have some more homeopathy <laughs> nonsense in the news. No. Yes, we do. For the two listeners out there who don't know what homeopathy is, it is the 200-year-old practice of diluting substances to the point where there's no active ingredient left, uh, and then using the basically water that you have left as a remedy. It's utter nonsense. It's, it's been uh, disproved by a couple hundred years of, of basic science. And in clinical trials in the last 30, 40 years, it's essentially been disproven also. It, it's shown no consistent effect. Uh, no one's been able to come up with a single homeopathic remedy that, has, that can consistently be shown to have any, a real physiological effect or measurable medical effect. It's essentially consistent with noise, with a, with a, a null effect. Well, the Cochrane Collaboration recently published hey, a, watch your mouth. Re- my favorite group. a review of uh, the use of homeopathic remedies to treat the side effects of cancer therapy, either radiotherapy or chemotherapy. The study was led by Dr. Sozi Kassab, who is a specialist in complementary cancer therapy at the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital. Now, 
the uh, vast majority of news reports are, again, probably just parroting the press release saying that homeopathy eases cancer therapy, or again, essentially that homeopathy works. However, this is a terrible review, absolutely terrible. And it represents a trend that I find extremely disturbing, which is now the Cochrane Collaboration is a group that essentially uh, is an evidence-based medicine organization, right? They're an independent group that promotes evidence-based medicine that does systematic reviews of the literature to say, like, what does the evidence support? What's the bottom line? Uh, and, and generally, their reviews are excellent and can be relied upon. Although what I see happening... Uh, recently is that complementary alternative medicine proponents are being put in charge of doing the Cochrane reviews. Like in this case, it's kind of like putting the fox in charge of the hen house, and they're coming out with these you know, rather poorly done reviews, or they're overstating the state of the evidence, which is kind of the whole point of doing the review in the first place. So in, for the, in this case, for example, there were a small number of studies. They really only identified eight studies. Most of them were of poor quality. There was only a few uh, what they considered to be high-quality studies, and most of those were negative. But there was you know, one or two studies that were reasonable where the results came out positive. How, and then they used that to say that there is an effect but it needs to be replicated and needs to and more research needs to be done. Now I got to tell you, you know, from the reviews that I've read just on any topic from Cochrane review with this level of evidence, in my opinion, your average Cochrane review would say there is insufficient evidence at this time to draw any conclusions about the effectiveness of this treatment. But now with the same level of evidence we're saying it works, but we need more studies. Which, which I feel is disingenuous, and I think that's a reflection of the bias of, of the lead author. That's what you get when you put a homeopath in charge of doing a homeopathy review. But here's the biggest problem with this review. In addition to the fact that the evidence is actually quite lacking, most, there's very few studies, most of the studies are crappy, the one big study that was high quality that worked, and this was pointed out by Edzard Ernst, who was excellent, and it's, I'm glad to see that he's getting interviewed a lot for, by the BBC for these articles because he, he puts it into perspective. He said that, I'll just, and I'll just quote him from uh, the BBC article, uh, nobody doubts that undiluted remedies can have effects, and interestingly, the positive studies here seem to be on such medicines rather than on the highly diluted treatments, which are a hallmark of homeopathy. In fact, the calendula cream found to be effective in one study is not diluted at all, and thus it cannot, to all intents and purposes, be considered to be a typical homeopathic remedy. So there you go. This is incredibly deceptive to do a study on a quote-unquote homeopathic remedy but using an undiluted substance, meaning active ingredient. That's not homeopathy. Wow. It's not homeopathy. It's a deception, but it's used to say that homeopathy works. No, some drug worked in an undiluted form. (laughs) In fact, the calendula cream is known to have the effect that they were looking for, right? It's known to, to reduce... You know, these uh, symptoms, these skin symptoms. Isn't this the same thing like Zycam, you know, which ha- which is claimed to be a homeopathic remedy, but it has zinc in it? Yeah, it's right? cheating. Yeah, it's cheating. <laughs> so, Steve, do you think they're moving in this direction now? Well, I think that they're doing, again, this is just a desperate grab for legitimacy. They're doing this to muddy the waters and in order to be able to, you know, then put out a press release saying homeopathy works. But, you know, homeopathy defined how, right? And it's it gets 
it's also part of the big problem with a lot of complementary and alternative medicine modalities is that their concepts are not well defined. They don't have any coherent kind of you know, uh, scientific theory behind what they're doing. So what is homeopathic? What, what does it really mean? If you could ha- use an undiluted drug and call it homeopathy, then what, the, what does that say about the principles of homeopathy? I liken this to doing quote-unquote acupuncture, but then using electrical current through the needles. Uh, no, that's not acupuncture. That is electrical stimulation, right, which we know has a physiological effect. But that's cheating to call it acupuncture. Giving a drug and call it homeopathy is cheating. It's meant to be deceptive. And I think the ultimate goal of that is to, again, be able to have headlines that say homeopathy works. And then you give the stuff that's diluted to such a point that there's not a single molecule of active ingredient left. And you say, well, that works because this undiluted thing was shown to work. And I'm, it's really, again, the, and the worst thing about this is that the Cochrane collaboration is being taken for a ride because they are putting, again, they're, they're putting in charge of these kind of studies people who are ideological advocates. That's a serious problem. And I see that as a trend within CAM in general, at universities, in journals, and regulatory agencies. They are the people who are, you know, alternative medicine practitioners are the ones that are being put on the committees. Are, are the gatekeepers are making the decisions so of course they're going to be endorsing their ideology and they're not going to be it's not really giving the independent scientific review of these modalities that that it deserves that is a, a terrible trend that is not doing the public a service but it's happening mainly because you know the scientists and and deans and regulators whatever they don't want to bother with it. So they're happy to have somebody who, this is the guy who's in charge of alternative medicine, so he gets to make all the decisions. I'll just uh, turf it over to them. But of course, they're a proponent. Um, it's a big problem. And it's also, my last word on this, this is, our, this is my problem with evidence-based medicine. And this is why I started the Science-Based Medicine website, where I, now we, we have, I have quite a few colleagues blogging over there with me. The problem with evidence-based medicine, which is what's promoted by the Cochrane Collaboration, is that it doesn't take into consideration the extreme scientific implausibility of treatment such as homeopathy. It looks at the evidence on a level playing field as if we're starting from square one, right? With each new claim, it's as if we know nothing about it. Rather than using what we would call more of a Bayesian analysis where you start by how probable is this given everything we know about science? And then you add evidence to that to say, now after this evidence, where are we? So if you start with extreme scientific implausibility, which you definitely have with homeopathy. You've got to raise the bar. Absolutely. It's going to take more than eight crappy studies to say that it works. Then this, this, ex- this is a perfect example of where evidence-based medicine fails and why we need science-based medicine. Put the science back in medicine. Damn straight. Right. Uh, and we're going to end the news segment with a bit of a lighter element. Uh, Evan, you're going to tell us about ghosts in the UK. Well, yep. And there's a new, well, not a study, but a survey that has been published. And some interesting facts came out amongst them. As the headline reads, four out of ten people in Britain believe in ghosts, and more than half of them believe in life after death. And this research was done by Theos, a theology think tank. So take that for what it is. So does that Uh, mean that 10% of people believe in life after death but not in ghosts? Uh, I don't think that's quite right. Something like that. Somebody's (laughs) got to believe in one, not the other. By comparison, they said in 1950, the same question of asked of Britain's, do you believe in ghosts, 10%. Wow, 10 to 40. 
10 wow. to 40. I wonder why. The speculation is that as traditional religious beliefs are waning, these other more new age supernatural beliefs are filling this, the gap. That's, that's the speculation. And that's you know not necessarily true. I found in a recent survey of uh, U.S. citizens back in 2007, 48% of U.S. citizens believe in ESP. Mm-hmm. But in 1996, it was 66% of people surveyed believed in ESP. So I don't know. I think it it probably jumps all over the place for a lot of different reasons. I I think you know they're trying to strand all this with a theor- with a theological thread mm-hmm. and try to you know determine some things based on that. But I don't know. There's there's kind of this uh, uh, chaos factor I think right. that goes into this. And, but at the same time, you know, I think that article also said that there is a slight increase in skepticism over the same period of time. Yeah. That's Paul nice. Woolley, who was the director of Theos, he said the following things. He said, The Enlightenment optimism in the ability of science and reason to explain everything ended decades ago. Well, you know, that's not exactly right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> science and reason wow. <laughs> to explain everything. And then he says, The extent of belief will probably surprise people, but the finding is consistent with other research we have undertaken. Uh, he continues, The results indicate that people have a very diverse and unorthodox set of beliefs. I think that's right. Our research may point to a slight increase in skepticism about aspects of the supernatural Woo-hoo! over the last 10 years. That's a slight increase in skepticism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take whatever we can get. Yeah, so at this rate, how long will it take to, for the whole world to be skeptical? Yeah, only about well, a 200 it, years. But you're thinking of it, you know, you're thinking of it in very linear terms. It's, it's more To me, it's more like S-curves. You know, it's up, it's down. It's way, it's, you know. It's or... Back and maybe forth. it's geometrical. Maybe the amount of skepticism will double every year, in which case it won't like take us Mo- long at all. Like Moore's law of technology, right? Mo- right. Moore's law of skepticism. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, and for the record, here's some other. I'll just throw out these statistics. When I looked up what uh, U.S. citizens believe, 34 percent believe in ghosts. 23 of them have seen a ghost. 31 percent of liberals believe in ghosts, and 18 percent of those who are politically conservative. Now, see, I think with that breakdown, that, that's religion, in my see? opinion. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right, Steve. I think you're right. Uh, what was another one? Oh, yeah. 30% of people have awoken to a strange person in the room. What a strange person. Yeah, that is. Well, that, that's you know, that happens quite often, depending on how much you drink, right? But, you know, get, <laughs> take the bottle out of your butt and we find out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and this. Oh, here's one more interesting t- statistic. We'll wrap it up with this. Fifty-one percent of college graduates believe in ESP. Thirty-seven percent of high school graduates, or or less, believe in ESP. Oh wow! College is doing Isn't a good that interesting? job. Yeah, that's old news, though. I mean, a college that education actually increases belief in the supernatural. The you would think that there would be a the, the correlation the other way, but. It probably has something to do with just being open about strange or unusual or fantastical ideas. It doesn't really get to the point where you have a higher, almost postgraduate level education in science. That education then starts to decrease belief in the supernatural or the paranormal. You start whittling it down, though, as a percentage of the population. When you start getting to that level, I mean, you whittle it way down. So there you go. 40% of Britons, they believe in ghosts. Rebecca, does does Sid believe in ghosts? I don't know. Do you want me to ask him? Could you? Only if he gets on your headset and responds in a very British accent. Hello, Sid. Hello. 
Hey, Sid. Hello, Sid. You're on the Skeptic's Guide to hey, the Universe. Sid. Hey, Sid, do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> Steve wants to know if you if you believe in ghosts. Um, no. No, not at all? No. There you go. <laughs> do you need anything else? It's like a straw poll of one person. No. So, uh... All right, so in our very scientific survey, 0% of Britain's surveyed believe in ghosts. All right. Thank you, Sid. Thanks, Sid. No, thank you. Steve, we should send those poll results to the Cochrane co- collaboration <laughs> and see if they uh, do a report on it. Right. <laughs> well, let's go on to some of your questions and email. But first, a word from James Randi. Hello, this is James Randi, if you haven't guessed already. I'm very pleased to announce that registration is now officially open for the Amazing Meeting 7, the biggest and best critical thinking conference in the world to be held from July 9th through the 12th, 2009 at the beautiful South Point Casino Hotel and Spa in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is a change in venue that will better accommodate the size of crowd we got last year, just short of 900 skeptics of all sizes, ages, shapes, ethnicity, homelands, and degrees of enthusiasm. This July, our speakers will include the ubiquitous Michael Shermer from the Skeptic Society, our good friend Adam Savage of the Mythbusters, our president Phil Plate from the Bad Astronomy blog, of course, Jennifer Wellett from the Science and Entertainment Exchange, and the Penn and Teller duo, and of course, moi. Our keynote speaker this year will be Bill Prady, executive producer of the hit television show The Big Bang Theory, and he'll tell us about how he's helped make it cool to be an accredited official nerd. We'll also have our usual stellar panels, workshops, and after-hours entertainment, including a mentalism act by a well-known, bearded, and cranky skeptic you may know and love. He'll be offering his audience a couple of brand new mental wonders that have not been shown before even to the magicians of the world. Those who attend TAM 7 will also witness an actual real-time test for our world-famous challenge prize, an actual scientific, statistically correct, carefully controlled test which may lead to the awarding of the million-dollar prize. This is just not to be missed. For more information, go to AmazingMeeting.com, that's AmazingMeeting.com, to get all the information on this amazing event. As always, this is James Randi, still amazing, and I hope to see you there in Las Vegas at the Amazing Meeting 7. Well, let's move on to some of your questions and emails. First, a few corrections from the last couple of weeks. Going to start by a letter uh, from Mark Wilson, a professor of geology at the College of Worcester. And he writes Hello, rogues. I love the show, having listened to every episode from the beginning. It's not only funny, but I always learn something I can use in either my teaching or research. Gee, cool. we're helping cool. geology research. That's awesome. I can now return the favor in a very minor way. I am a paleontologist who specializes in invertebrate fossils and evolution. I teach geology at the College of Worcester. In your discussion of the large deep-sea protist Gromia spherica, you wondered why its shell is called a test. This is true for shells found in other protist groups, such as foraminiferans, and for the primary skeleton of echinoids, including sea urchins and sand dollars. Mm. The term comes from the Latin testa, which means, (laughs) simply enough, a shell, and was sometimes also used for a skull or even a pot. 
In biology, the term is often used to designate a shell which has soft organic material on the outside as well, something like the skin over a skull during life. Protists and echinoids usually have some sort of layer covering the outside of their tests. You covered the evolutionary implications of Gromia and its tracks very well. I studied trace Woo-hoo. fossils and can tell you that this discovery made quite a stir in the scientific community. Again, excellent show. If you ever have paleontological questions, I'd love to give them a try. Uh, well, thanks, Mark. So he was referring to – we discussed the, the macrobe, the giant protist a couple of weeks ago, and, we, and it, it has um, an outer coating of fecal material. Yikes. Yeah. In, inside the test. Right, and, it, right. and that, that outer coating was called a test, and Bob and I didn't know what the, what the derivation of that word is or why they use that term. So thanks for that. Uh, Steve, didn't we, didn't we also get a, another email from somebody dissing our coverage on, uh, on that very topic? Yeah, well, this is unrelated to the <laughs> test thing, the, the terminology, but somebody thought that... Our general, our, our coverage, g- just ge- our coverage in general of yeah. the topic, he didn't agree with. Didn't but, agree uh, with. I don't but know. I'll, I'll go with the paleontologist. Yes, me too. Uh, Evan, argument from authority. Evan, another <laughs> correction from last week. Apparently, you totally screwed up your coverage of the "is corn syrup kosher" question. That's right. I no was longer, right. Am I no longer Jewish? Yeah, we relied upon your authority as a Jew, and you let us know. I think I said I didn't know. I, said, <laughs> I strongly suspected <laughs> I was right on that, but I didn't want to push it because who's going to question the Jew? I, <laughs> well, not right. me. Wow. Yeah. But actually, no, I, you know, the very, funny thing is, the funny thing is, Evan, I knew you were blindsided by that question, so I actually looked it up in post-production, which I often do, do a little fact-checking mm. in post-production, mm. and what you said seemed to check out uh, on the first well, link that I went to, although this story is apparently a little bit more complex, that there's two, essentially, I guess, two main kosher traditions, and within one tradition it is fi- it's fine but within another one it isn't kosher for passover fun is that kosher and, you know, n- nobody <laughs> nobody mentioned this in like that that was brought up a few times in the emails that were sent to yeah. us but i actually did look into it a little bit before the podcast because i'd seen it and i was curious about it and what i had read was that there were um there, there there are some kinds of corn syrup that have been specifically created to be kosher. So there are corn syrups on the market that are kosher, um, while there are others that are not. Yeah, because so, they're, they're supervised by a rabbi in the production process. Yeah, I think it's a little supervised, different than yeah, that. But loosely. yeah, yeah. So it's I think both things are correct that there are, are you know different levels of orthodoxy that either accept or reject the use of corn syrup and then there are also different purveyors of corn syrup that can be kosher. So Right. Well Rabbi Lerner says the general rule was to prohibit corn syrup when it was uncertain whether the preparation of the corn syrup was done with the appropriate supervision. But there's always a couple of layers of complexity that you know you don't get to unless you really dig into it deeply. So there's there's layers here. A couple of kernels of truth, right? right? Behind the corn syrup. Right. Of course, ultimately, I think we're all agnostic about corn syrup. Yes. That's why. That sounds good. One last one. This one comes from, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how I'm supposed to pronounce the name. They use kind of funky things. But Andrak Hackbert. 
if that is your real name. And they, <laughs> and they write, it was stated on the last podcast, 193, based on a new scientist survey that 48% of science school teachers said that they taught about creationism or ideas a legitimate alternate, alternative to Darwinian explanations for the origin of species. That's a lot. I used this in an argument with my wife. She said that I would have to back it up. The following is from the new scientist survey. Then he quotes, however, a quarter of the teachers also reported spending at least some time teaching about creationism or intelligent design. Of these, 48%, about 12.5% of the total survey, said they taught it as a valid scientific alternative to Darwinian explanations for the origin of species. So, uh, Andrek continues, 48% of a quarter of the survey equals about 12.5%. Am I reading this wrong? Nope, I screwed up. It's, you were correct. It was 12.5% of the total survey. I missed the bit about the 48% only being of the 25% who teach some uh, who teach about creationism or intelligent design. So those are the accurate figures. Next email comes from Marty Sai, who writes, I've been debating with a friend about the nature of science, and he brought up the following argument. Number one, all inferences from experience to conclusions about the future presuppose the principle that the future will resemble the past. This is the principle of uniformity of nature. If we suspect that the course of nature may change and that the past is no guide to the future, then all experience becomes useless and does not support any conclusion about the future. Number two, therefore no argument from experience can support the principle that the future will resemble the past. Number three, no deductive argument can establish the principle that the future will resemble the past. Number four, therefore, the principle of uniformity of nature cannot be rationally justified. Number five, if the principle of the uniformity of nature cannot be rationally justified, then inductive reasoning in science cannot be rationally justified, leading to number six, therefore, inductive reasoning in science cannot be rationally justified. Your thoughts? So... What this is, you guys, I don't know if you, any of you guys recognize this line of argument. Well, this is not, um, this is not new to Marty's friend. I mean, this has been around for a while. No, I thought yeah, it was the, anth- uh, the anthropic it, principle, it, right? No, no. Was it Hume? Yeah. Hell was, yes, yeah. David Hume. Wow, nice, Bob. This. Good one. Thank Done. you. Yeah, so Hume, obviously a brilliant thinker, brilliant philosopher, you know, posed this, not, not trying to say that science is bunk, which is sometimes often how it's used today, but just to say, just from a purely logical point of view, there's this dilemma, this inductive induction dilemma with science that if we're – how do we – within science, how could we use induction to prove that induction works, right? That the future – that the laws of nature and that we can learn about the future by thinking about or observing the past or the present. And science becomes circular reasoning. We know it works because it works. But there's – you know. This, this question has been mulled over for, for quite a bit of time. The, the problem here in this line of argument is that is this, the phrase, if we suspect that the course of nature may change and that the past is no guide to the future, well, we have a lot of good reasons to think that the past is a reasonable guide to the future. Now, if we just take everyday experience, for example, we behave as if the past is a reliable guide to the future, right? We will, won't jump off a 10-story building because of why? Because when people have done that in the past, they've fallen to the ground and splatted in, uh, at the bottom, right? Well, I think that the, pa- the past is an amazingly reliable 
source of information about the future. Sure. So we, we all go about our everyday lives assuming that all the things we learned about how the world works, you know, if we sit on a chair, it's, it's solid, it will support us. If we turn our steering wheel of our car to the left, the car will actually turn to the left. But Steve, that's the crux of the entire arg- argument, it seems to me. Yeah. And we just shot it down, so therefore, the, that's it. Game over. The whole thing collapses. I yeah, agree. Collapsing, yeah. So then we look at the bigger picture, though. So okay, so in everyday mundane things, sure, you know, the, 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 the past seems to be a reasonable guide to the future. But how do we really know in the more subtle aspects of how nature works it is? And there's a couple of ways to look at this. One is the fact that the, the this principle of uniformity in nature is not an assumption of science. It actually is just one other thing about the universe that can be investigated by science. And we don't assume it. It actually is something that we can address. So, for example, we you know, measure the speed of light because we can you know, flash a mirror off of the moon, for example. And, or, or with other methods, you know, we, could, we can infer or measure the speed of light. And over, over time, it seems to be... Uh, a constant, right? It's not fluctuating over time. We don't get you know, significantly different values for the speed of light on one day or the next. Uh, so whenever we measure constants or measure you know, laws of the, of the universe, they, once they're well established, they seem to hold up over time. The, lo- the basic laws and constants of the universe seem stable as we investigate them. So to, to the extent that it's been observed, the principle of uniformity holds true. Although you can also look at it as, well, science is about finding, making predictions about the future, right? It's about coming up with an abstraction of how the universe works, using that abstraction to make predictions about what will be observed in the future. So science, our scientific knowledge stems from those predictions coming true, right? If they didn't come true, we wouldn't have any scientific theory or any scientific knowledge. If if there were no uniformity in nature, the only thing you could really say is that we can't know anything, right? Is that the universe is inscrutable and chaotic and unknowable. That would be the only thing that you could really say. That means that the past 300 years of formalized science has been what I call a meta-experiment, right? It's been a meta-experiment about the very question of does science work? Science working being dependent upon the fact that there is uniformity in nature to the extent that if we make predictions based upon our theories, you know, and the theory is correct, that the predictions will come true, right? If the universe were quirky and chaotic, we couldn't make any predictions because the rules would constantly be changing. Um, and therefore, you get to this very practical argument of, well, has science worked? You know, has it, have we been able to generate theories and abstractions that make predictions that are validated, that come true? And I think the answer to that is pretty clearly yes. So duh, yeah. I mean, so not only <laughs> do we in our everyday lives the little things that we take for granted, you know, hold up, but um, like my favorite example is the fact that we've used our abstractions about gravity, the gravitational constant, about force, and the formulas like force equals mass times acceleration, the structure of the solar system to send a little hunk of metal millions of miles away and are rewarded by getting back beautiful pictures of Saturn and its rings, right? And we wouldn't have gotten rewarded by these close-up pictures of Saturn and its rings if science didn't work, if, if there wasn't uniformity in nature. So that's a pretty good validation 
I think that uh, that the premise of uniformity is is reasonable. So that's the answer. And I think that this also is in the context of, again, science is not about ultimate philosophical metaphysical truths, right? It's only about right. Right. an approximation of nature that, that works as far as we observe or as far as we can tell and making predictions. And, we adjust, and it gets adjusted accordingly right. as more evidence presents itself. Yeah, absolutely. But not – and you can't say anything with, to a philosophical certitude in science because it's not about it. So any, any – um, philosophical criticism that ultimately says, well, science cannot prove that something must absolutely has to be true based and. upon philosophical first principles. The answer to that is that's correct. It's also completely irrelevant because <laughs> the scientific method never claimed that it does that. It's not about that at all. It is about just making uh, predictions and seeing how well they work out. And that's good enough for me. Right. That, yeah, that's, 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 yep, that's, that's the best we got. Yeah, that's the best we got. That's the bottom line. It's the best we got. S is for science. That's good enough for me. <laughs> and now, Randy speaks. So, Randy, we were talking about um, earlier the uh, intersection between. The human brain, which is my specialty, I'm a neurologist, and magic, because magicians are actually put into practice a lot of uh, practical knowledge of the human brain, about how to deceive the way people process information, so ways of exploiting the foibles of the human brain. The, the point uh, that I would make here is that uh, as a magician, as a young magician, just as a kid, I discovered that uh, I had to know a lot about psychology and the way people's brains work. Now... I never got into it as deeply as you have, of course. You've spent your life at it. But I did learn a few things, and some of those things I think uh, I was able to impart to not only the other magicians, but a few scientists along the way. For example, one thing that we learn as soon as we get into the profession is that people assume a lot. Now, we assume a lot, this is my analysis of it, because otherwise we'd become catatonic. We'd just stop dead, you know, you, you look at traffic lights. Red means stop and green means go and yellow means go like hell. Mm-hmm. If you had to wonder as you reach the edge of the pavement, have they changed the meaning of the lights? Uh, are the colors changed around or am I not seeing them correctly? You know, I often tell my audiences uh, when they sit down, you folks uh, make a lot of assumptions uh, and I hope you will for the sake of my act. I didn't see anyone test the chair. Mm-hmm. When they came in here, did you test the chair to make sure it was sufficient to support your weight? No. You took it for granted. You have to make assumptions. I also point out to them, for example, in um, uh, when I'm, I'm teaching young fellows uh, to do magic uh, routines and think as a magician, I say, never walk on stage and say, I have here a regular deck of cards. No, because that allows them the possibility of thinking, maybe that's not a regular deck mm-hmm. of cards. But if you take a deck of cards, unwrap it, break the seal on it, shake it out into your hand, toss the box away, start shuffling it, the assumption is it's an ordinary deck of cards. Now, they're not convinced of it necessarily, but at least they make that tentative assumption. Mm -hmm. Right, but if you make a specific claim, then you're inviting them to question that claim. Exactly, and you don't invite them to question any of these things. 
Our brains make a lot of subconscious assumptions for us. Indeed. And once you learn what those are, then you really can freak people out. That's what the basis of a lot of optical illusions is exploiting those assumptions that our, mm-hmm. our brain is making just by the way it evolved to process information. For example, if something's smaller, it probably is farther away. Things get smaller yes. as it gets farther away. So you could trick people with optical illusions to... to think that something is farther away by, by presenting them with a smaller version of something than they're used to seeing, for example. How do magicians take advantage of that kind of thing? In an illusion box. Now, we all know that there are boxes that are designed specially to create optical effects and illusions. Suppose you have a, a large square box there into which a girl would fit, sort of curled up, if she wanted to curl up and if she were there. And when you open the front of the box, you see nothing. Now, the girl, this is hypothetical, of course, may be behind Mm -hmm. the box, hanging out the back a bit, for example. And believe me, that could happen. If you design the inside of the box... Now, I've seen magicians make big mistakes where the inside of the box is black, for example. Mm. When you look at black like that, you see nothing. You're not seeing empty, you're seeing nothing. If it's bright red or yellow or or blue or whatever, uh, you can sort of see the back of it, but it's still a, a massive color. Can you give me another example of a way in which a magician on stage would exploit those kind of neurological assumptions people make in order to carry out an illusion? Addressing the audience, for example, the magician may put his hand in his pocket casually and and chat with them and make a few jokes, perhaps. He may do that for a very good reason, not because he's trying to get rid of something or get something from his pocket. He wants them to get used to the fact that he often addressed them by putting his hand casually into his pocket and then nodding at them and walking about the stage casually. Now, next time he puts his hand in his pocket, it may be to get or to get rid of something. So they've begun to accept that that's the way this man behaves. Mm -hmm. He does this sort of thing. So that's a a good, uh, well, neurological uh, situation for you, if you wish. Yeah, so you habituate them to the elements of the trick which are, which are critical to the trick itself, but you don't want it to stand out. I'll give you a really good working example of that. Um, many years ago, when I was just a tad, little guy, and I went to the casino theater, I'll never forget it, I saw a Chinese magician who, he had a wonderful effect. Uh, he had a limp, first of all. He was a little gimpy. But he handled it very well, and you, you saw that he had this, this problem with his gait. And he would go around the stage, big smile, wonderful production of goldfish and every sort of wonderful animal and, and object. He closed his show with a big uh, extravaganza with all the girls on stage, some very statuesque young ladies, I want to say. With this gimp on it, you got sort of used to seeing him and, uh, almost stumble about, not quite, but just a, a slight hesitation in his uh, gait. And uh, then they, they dressed in big headdresses and costumes, very flowery, and his chief assistant came forward, a statuesque blonde, and she put on this lion head of some kind and with a big cape and bright gold-colored costume, and he was in a dark green costume with spangles all over it, and he put on some other sort of dragon head. The two of them danced about on the stage and mixed in with the, the rest of the crew. And then they went down to the back of the stage, way downstage, and then came forward. They marched forward, holding hands, and suddenly he lost his gimp. And she picked it up. And when they reached the front of the stage, they took off the heads. That was the magician. That was the girl. And they had changed costumes on the way somehow, changed position. 
But the gimp, when we saw him leave the theater afterwards, he wasn't limping. That was entirely an act that he sold the audience mm -hmm. on accepting that he was the one who stumbled about the stage. And of course, the, the, the reason why we are interested in this kind of thing, both as skeptics and as mm -hmm. magicians, the lesson here is that anyone can be fooled because we all oh, have the same absolutely. meat in our heads, the same, uh, the same hardwiring, the same processing. And is that a technical term, meat, meat in head? your head? Absolutely. Yes, okay. Meat We're all meatheads. And therefore, anyone could be fooled. We are not mm -hmm. perfect processors of information. No. There's a lots of ways in which the, the way we perceive things and think about things is flawed. And that can lead us to erroneous conclusions. Now, magicians use that for entertainment mm -hmm. by leading us to erroneous conclusions and then revealing something which then is, be, entertains us. But, of course, psychics and frauds and charlatans can use the same tricks exactly. in order to exploit exploit the innocent or exploit Very people. True. And no one is beyond being fooled because we all have the same human neurology. Exactly. And we uh, have the same weaknesses and the same strengths. You know, I'm, I'm astonished. You have been astonished about this all of your life, but I'm astonished every time I discover something new that this hunk of gray jelly behind my ears will do or won't do, because there are a lot of things that it won't do. I, I'm, I'm rather satisfied. At the age of 80, uh, I guess I've learned a few things somewhere along the line. Steve, I want to thank you for coming in today. It's a great pleasure to see you and, uh, and your companions that came along with you. It was fun, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Thank you, Randy. Always a pleasure. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake. Uh, I believe it was just one week ago that I got all of you guys, wasn't it? I don't remember that, actually. I think I have no recollection of that, that either. Either. a clean sweep. No. My therapist says not to remember such dark episodes in my history. <laughs> well, let's see how you guys do this week. Are you ready? Hurry up. Yes. All right. Number one, number one. <laughs> Scientists have discovered the first known ant species that form their colonies and live their lives entirely within the body of large mammals. Good. Whoa. Hmm. Number two, scientists discover that so-called silent mutations, those that do not affect the amino acid sequence a gene codes for, are not necessarily silent and can have dramatic effects. And item number three, researchers have found a new type of nerve fiber in the skin that fire only when the skin is stroked at a certain speed. Ooh. Uh-huh. Sexy. Yeah, that one is <laughs> sexy. Jay, go first. Okay, so first one, scientists have discovered the first known ant species that form their colonies and live their lives entirely within the body of large mammals. Holy Jesus, that is gross. <laughs> Man. All right, so large mammals. Scientifically Elephants. Speaking. I mean, it's, like we could rule out whales probably because – but if they're inside <laughs> – With little scuba gear on? Yeah. Little ants with scuba gear? That I don't know. I mean, I, I Bunch mean, of Jonas. Could you imagine? Imagine if you're an animal like an elephant who's actually very intelligent but doesn't have fingers and can't really scratch its own back, and there's like a colony of ants living in your upper ass. Well, you do have a quite long and uh, quite flexible trunk. Or you have a buddy nearby and say, hey, get the damn ants off. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, number two, scientists discover that so-called silent mutations, those that do not affect the amino acid sequence, gene code 
Gene codes for are not necessarily silent and can have dramatic effects like singing. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Next one. Researchers have found a new type of nerve fiber in the skin that fire only when the skin is stroked at a certain speed. That one, I don't know. That seems to make sense. Wouldn't you agree, Rebecca? No help I'd me rather either. not comment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Until my turn. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm thinking that the third one is probably true. That's the speed of, of stroking skin. I'm thinking that the first one is like insanely horrific and seems unlikely. And that second one doesn't seem that big of a deal, is it? A full colony of ants living in your ass. That's disgusting, Steve. I don't think the word ass was ever brought up until you started speaking, Jay. But where else are they going to crawl into and live? Oh, man. That can't be true. That's the fake. All right. Bob? The nerve fiber, I mean, at first blush, it seems like, how, how were they going to find a nerve fiber that's, that hasn't been discovered until now? But I, you're so sensitive to touch in some ways, like getting a massage and things. It's, it seems like such an awesome experience. I could see a, a nerve fiber dedicated just for that. Um, the silent mutations, um, but that doesn't surprise me with the, all the subtle effects we're seeing in genetics so I'm not totally surprised by that. The first one, though, I've got a problem with because now maybe it's just the way you worded this, Steve, but if they live their entire lives within the body of large animals, how do they get in there? They've got to have part of the life cycle where they're not inside the body Bob, but in, or- in order to get in there. Bob, yeah, they crawl into mm-hmm. the ass. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, um, I, so I think that might be the, f- the fatal flaw in that statement, Steve. Well, I think the implication there is that once the colony is established. Okay. Does that mean that you have to have a colony finding their way inside an animal and then they get together <laughs> well, and like, okay, this is it. I just got this is home. Got a weird Jay's confusing ass here. He's, he's colon colonies. <laughs> <laughs> ass. That's what, that's where that is. Yeah, that's just so bizarre that that may be why you want us to pick it, but I'm going to pick it anyway and say that's fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, that's certainly fishy. I mean, the, uh, I mean, ants. That's that's really creepy and weird, and I can't imagine it being true. <laughs> the others are certainly understandable enough. I think that, um, yeah, I'm gonna go with the ant thing. I think that's BS. Okay, Evan. Oh, see, that's that's the bad part about going last. Everyone else goes to go look- before you. <laughs> oh, there's that. <laughs> And that you know you you've come to you you've made your decision and stick then you're to your guns. Your turn in line. Yeah, well, I'm, it's the ants is the fiction. You know, number two, the silent mutations and having dramatic effects, also known as silent but deadly. Totally, <laughs> totally plausible. Mm-hmm. And then the nerve fiber. I thought maybe that was the curveball this week, Steve. I know how you like your neurology, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's the ants. That one is fiction. Okay. So you all agree yeah. that scientists discover that so-called silent mutations, those that do not affect the amino acid sequence a gene codes for, are not necessarily silent and can have dramatic effects. And yes, Jay, I would have found that to be surprising. Yeah. That definitely goes against a lot of uh, conventional genetics. But that one is science. Okay. Woo-hoo, this is a very yay. surprising discovery. So these are so-called synonymous or silent mutations. Please explain. So the DNA 
is comprised of genes. You know, genes have a sequence of amino acids. There's which, and every three base pairs in the gene codes for a specific amino acid. There are 20 amino acids, which are the basic building blocks of proteins. Right, so as you're reading along the DNA, every three base pairs is the next amino acid, and that tells the, what sequence to, to attach the amino acids to build the protein. Now, there are 64 different possible three-letter combinations in the DNA code, but there's only 20 amino acids. That means mm. there's a, that there is redundancy, that there are uh, for each amino acid, there's more than one three, you know, three-letter combination that will code for it, right? So... A silent mutation is one in which you change one, one letter, one base pair, from one nucleic acid to another, but it, uh, it, still, it still codes for the same amino acid. So it doesn't result in a change in the amino acid sequence, right? Therefore, silent or synonymous. What they found is, and they, what they did a very interesting study, they looked at a gene that codes for a green-glowing protein, and they, they compared the different synonymous mutations of this m- protein. And they, what they found was that some variants, in some variants, a much greater amount of the protein was produced. Whoa. While, while in other, other uh, synonymous mutations, there was much less. So even though the protein was exactly the same, these silent mutations were regulating how much it was getting expressed, how much, of the, how much the gene was getting expressed, or how much of it was t- being how much protein was being made from it. So, so that, that impacts proteomics then. Absolutely. And this is also just, it's a yet another type of genetic disease that somebody could have. So you might have a, wow. a, a gene that produces a perfectly normal protein, but maybe it's making too much of it or not enough of it because of these silent mutations that previously we weren't paying that much attention to. Not for medical purposes anyway. I mean... Wow. When did that co- when did that come out, Steve? Definitely would have surprised me. That that was published on April 9th, so last week. Wow, would you have picked that, that one, Steve? I don't know. It's hard. I mean, that definitely would have surprised me. I was surprised when I read it. I'm like, oh, I also my, my second thought was, "Oh crap, the intelligent design buffoons oh, are going to jump all over this one." Yeah. You know, not not that it in any way calls into question any of the ev- lines of evidence for evolution, but you know that's what they do is they every time we discover something new, they say, "Oh, that really throws a wrench in it," you know, and then they try to somehow right. distort <laughs> it to make it sound like it calls into question the the bigger picture of evolution itself. Huh. The, yeah, the fact of evolution, right? Right. Instead of the theory. <laughs> Let's go on to the third one. You guys also all agreed that researchers have found a new type of nerve fiber in the skin that fire only when the skin is stroked at a certain speed. And that one is science. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so you guys <laughs> made a clean sweep this week to Got make up for last week. Got you again, Novella. Good job. Good job. <laughs> that um, was this interesting is, one. Yeah, this is interesting. And what, so what they did find was that uh, – there are a specific type of nerve fibers in the skin called C-tactile nerves, C-tactile. or CT nerves. And these nerves <laughs> fire. What they showed was that they fire when they are stimulated, but only at a certain frequency. Uh, me- what frequency? Well, they actually don't say. Kenneth. But, what? So, and they're clearly designed to respond to, um, to touch, but not... Static touch, 
but you know, but a stroking at a certain speed. So what what they did was you know, they would they actually had like a robot or something, a mechanical device, so that the the speed was precise. Provide tactile stimulation to the subject's arm, for example, and it's only on certain parts of the body. So the hands do not have these nerve endings, but uh, the skin that would normally have hair follicles would would have it. So like your arm, for example, as they increased the speed, the nerves fired more and more and more to, to some peak, and then but too fast, and they wouldn't, and they would stop firing again. So there was this range of speeds of, of like stroking the skin where these would would fire. Now the other aspect of this is that the sensation produced by the activation of these nerves was very pleasurable; that it produced a specifically pleasant sensation, and it could mute pain too. Wasn't that another? another Aspect yes, of it? and although this has been known for a long time, but this this is consistent with the notion of counter irritation. You know, if you mm. bang your elbow and it hurts, you rub it. Yeah, rub it. You know, why do you rub it? You rub it because you're activating other pathways. Well, this is one other pathway that gets activated okay, that does cool. not carry pain signals, uh, but it does inhibit the pain pathways. What if a bunch of ants were inside of me? Yeah. Uh, so that's fake. You know, vibrating. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. So glad <laughs> that's fake. Scientists have discovered the first known ant species that form their colonies and live their lives entirely within the body of large mammals is complete another and utter fiction. However, right. you guys are not following your previous patterns. So the, your, ah. your past is not <laughs> was not a good prediction. Of <laughs> because in the past, yes. you, <laughs> you have... <laughs> endorse the notion that uh, you would believe any creepy thing about insects, first of all, and that the most outlandish okay. item is usually the one that you think I, didn't say I threw that. in there to deceive you, and therefore you end up going with it. Like, See, I, I, I've said so. things that are similar to that, Steve, but it's not the exact truth. It's yeah. uh, it's something sometimes there, you know, you give us the three options and there's something very suspicious about one that sticks out that is so completely outlandish that it must be true. So it's not necessarily that always the most outlandish one yeah. has got to be true. I know, true. I know. It's I know. Just, yeah, you're in, in yeah, some circumstances. And I try to mix it up. I try to make sometimes the most outlandish one be the fake, sometimes not the fake. Oh, but where'd you get right. this and from? This time you, you didn't failed. make that up wholesale, did you? Uh, not wholesale. It's based on something. But what they did find, what they did find, was the first species of ant that reproduces completely asexually via cloning. I so saw that ladies yeah. doing it for themselves. Yeah, wait, wait, so how did you get? How did you get the freaking uh, <laughs> ant crawling in the ass scenario from that? <laughs> That's the part that I made up, Jay. You, Jay, made up the ass part. <laughs> Rebecca, we've you. clearly established that there's no other way in. <laughs> no, it could have gotten into the eye, the nose, the mouth, right? The ass, no, just the, the, just the ass. There's, parasites yeah, find their way into into animals through all kinds of orifices. Cuts, sure. Yeah. Food Un- under the fingernails. Enemas. <laughs> God, my favorite parasite is that worm that crawls across your eyeball. And then, oh, uh, stop, stop. Uh, Just, nice. That's awesome. Your favorite, then, what's your favorite parasite? You're the other one I like is the one that when you're sleeping, it crawls out of your nose and down into your mouth. Shut up. That doesn't why, no. why not just crawl from the inside and go around? Why? Uh, whatever. That's its life cycle. Um, so, <laughs> parasites are creepy. Anyway, so they, this is all female <laughs> ants. The queen's have completely asexual reproduction. Now, asexual reproduction is not 
unknown in insects and, or in ants, but this is the first one that does it exclusively. And that's, that's the new bit. That is cool. And not nearly as gross as you made it yeah. out. That's right. Not as, not as gross as living inside a person. You have quite an imagination, yeah. Steve. Yeah, you know. Sometimes i got to push the envelope. Evan, it's that there time. It's that time. Who's that noisy? Hey, hey Evan. Evan. Yo. What's this? Yes, sir. What's this? <laughs> Who's that noisy, Jay? I know. Who's that noisy? Who's that noisy? Now you've you got to tell us now. I'll tell you next week. Oh, you're going to do your own sort of sideline? Who's that? Thunder. I'm sorry, Evan. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. I got a quote lined up, so we're almost set. Uh, <laughs> Evan. <laughs> well, Evan, play last week's Who's That Noisy for us. All right, folks. Here it is. That noise was recording of the erosion of Europe's largest glacier wow. in Iceland. Now that's kind so of sad. So they stuck a microphone way, way down into the crevasse or cracks of a glacier and Film recorded what it sounded like. That so is the sound of water. glaciers breaking apart. That was ice well, melting. Yes, that was a, ice melting, guys. It was a glacier. glacier. Glacier eroding, technically. Yeah, ice melting, right. Yes. <laughs> okay. That was a, that was you know what that was a hard one. <laughs> it was a hard one, and you would think Did nobody get it? would have a shot. Did anyone get it? That. Well, yeah. Someone. Someone. Well, here I'll explain what happened. Okay. There were a lot of guesses. Nobody got it on their first guess. However, someone threw out four guesses, and his fourth guess was correct. But it happened to be the only person to respond correctly. So I guess it has to go to this guy. All right. And who's because that? That would be Philip Poiter from the message boards. Congratulations, Philip. And, you know, there, there's also been some discussion as to how people should go about posting their answers or, you know, getting us the answers uh, Yeah. Uh, for okay. the Who's That Noisy yeah, I think officially you know, uh, we don't care. No. <laughs> don't care at all. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we can't formalize this. <laughs> but, yeah. Evan, give us this week's Who's That Noisy. All right. Here is this week's Who's That Noisy? We had no idea about how this stuff could be done. We're sort of like, where were people with gravity before Newton came along? I mean, gravity worked, clearly, but no one had an idea how. So similarly, here's some things that uh, we saw worked and happened, but no idea how. All right. I don't have a good feeling about that one, Evan. That was obviously a man. Yeah. You can identify the man. I'm going to guess that that guy is not talking about other well-formed sciences. He's talking, <laughs> you know, that's my guess right now. Yeah, Just right. a hunch. And please keep sending in your uh, recordings, whatever you want to do with it. Get creative of introing the "Who's That Noisy" bit. Although we do like cute little kids saying "Who's That Noisy" in foreign accents. But we're certainly not restricted to that. But, you know. <laughs> Rebecca, who's, who's David Hume? He's a philosopher. <laughs> okay, he said, when men are most sure and arrogant, they are commonly most mistaken. Giving views to passion without that proper deliberation, which alone can secure them from the grossest absurdities. David Hume! Thank you, Jay. 
Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Surely. Thank, thank you, Steve. Steve. It was a pleasure it's to be joined a, to you. Good job it's on science fiction, everyone. You can let thank go. You. You. Really kick your ass. Wait, wait till next. Yeah, week. wait till next week. Uh-huh. And until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.